Blog Talk Radio. Hello, this is Gigabit Nation Broadband Talk Radio. I'm your host, Craig Settles, and I want to thank you for taking time today to uh, be with us as we provide useful information and insights to help public, private, and nonprofit organizations take more, get more, better broadband everywhere it needs to be. Um, I think a number of you are uh, familiar that with the FCC and their role in helping establish broadband policy. Um, we've got a lot of things going on with the FCC these days, and um, uh, today I'm going to have uh, Gigi Stone, who is the counselor to FCC Chairman Tom Wheeler, be our guest today and talk about some of those developments that are happening. Uh, Gigi, welcome to the show. Craig, great to be here. Thank you for uh, you know for taking that time. I will have to say to our um, our audience, there's some sort of glitch on the technology side, and I can't pull up the chat room, and uh, so I'm not ignoring anybody. I'm just totally technically unable to connect with everybody on the air. So, uh but we'll work we'll work around that. Um let's get right to it. Um uh Gigi, what are what are some of the uh important upcoming policy decisions that the the FCC will face in this next couple of months that are going to have some sort of impact on community broadband? Well, there are two that I can think of right, right off the top of my head, um, as folks may know. And, Craig, I'm getting a lot of feedback. I'm hearing myself, and it's driving me crazy. Oh, my. Can you fix that? Um, nuts. Okay, then we're going to do the. We're going to do this. I am going to um, let you sign off and then call you back, and let's see if we can get a better okay. connection. Okay, okay. Well, now I'm, now I'm not hearing it. No, I am still hearing it. Okay, I'll hang up then. Okay, hold on. Are you using a phone or a um, regular phone? Or I'm a using a headset. Okay. Should, I, should I get off the headset? Maybe maybe that could be the problem. Let's, let's, hold let's on do it a second. again. Well, I was using a headset before, but here, hold on a second. Hello? Hello? I'm still here. No, I'm still getting the feedback. Okay, let me let me you hang up, and I'll call you right back. Very good. Very good. Okay. Hello?
Hello. Hello. Gigi. Yes. Yes. Okay. Uh, is it better for you now? No, not really. But let's just let's just go on, and I'll just try to answer the questions without driving myself crazy. Okay. Thank you much. Here, here we go. So, anyway, so um, the question, your question was, what are the policy decisions coming down the pike in the next couple months uh, that will affect community broadband? And the two that I can think of off the top of my head are, um, they we will be putting out rules uh, so that community broadband systems, if they are uh, eligible telecommunications carriers, can compete for money from our high-cost fund, otherwise known as the Connect America Fund. So what's happened is we have offered the so-called price cap carriers. These are very large carriers like CenturyLink and Frontier uh, and others uh, to serve unserved rural areas uh, and to subsidize them through our Connect America Fund. Well, uh, some like Frontier and Windstream have already taken um, – some or all of the money uh, that that cover their areas, and others may decline it. So uh, if in the case that there are no price cap carriers willing to serve certain rural areas, a community broadband system could tap into that pot of money. Uh, the second issue, and this is one um, that's got a lot of attention, uh, has to do with Lifeline. So Lifeline is another one of our universal service programs, much like the Connect America Fund. But unlike the Connect America Fund, uh, it is a monthly subsidy of $9.25 that has gone since 1985 first to pay for landline telephone service for uh, people in lower income status or poor people, uh, and since 2008 has gone to pay for wireless cell phones. And now we are looking and we have proposed to make Lifeline a subsidy for broadband. And again, in order to get uh, uh, Lifeline subsidies, this is a subsidy that goes straight to the carrier, one has to be what's called an eligible telecommunications carrier, which you have to apply either with the states or with the FCC, although I will say in the Lifeline um, uh, proceeding that we started a couple weeks ago, we are asking the question as to whether one should have to be an eligible telecommunications carrier in order to get the Lifeline subsidy. And if we determine that you do, how can we streamline the process for becoming an ETC so it's not so burdensome? Right. Okay. That makes a lot of sense because um, the the communities are starting to more and more, you know, come online with these networks, and it seems like we're, uh, you know, if we follow the rules, you know, the letter of the law, as it were, you know, that communities are not eligible for these funds. So if we change it, um, it'll definitely then open up this opportunity for those uh, community networks to become part of the the uh, funding process, which is for my opinion. And I think that that's we the, the more competition, the merrier. From you know, from our perspective, particularly in Lifeline, 
you know, we do ask a series of questions in this proceeding that we've teed up. So what we've done is we've issued a notice of proposed rulemaking. Mm-hmm. And we, the two big proposals that we make are, number one, uh, again, to make Lifeline a broadband subsidy, although it can continue to be a subsidy for, for telephone in, uh, in addition. And the second big thing we propose is whether there should be minimum standards for the broadband service that we subsidize. So the idea is we don't want poor, the poor the poor to get a second-class service. Right. Uh, there is actually a third big issue that uh, proposal that we make, and that is um, right now the carrier itself determines who is eligible to be a Lifeline recipient. And we think that there's a little bit of a perverse incentive there for the carriers to find folks eligible uh, regardless of the situation. So we are proposing instead... Uh, to have a some sort of national eligibility verifier that carriers and others can use to determine whether somebody is eligible. And eligibility is set in a number of different ways. Uh, it's set whether your income is 135% uh, or, or less of the poverty line. It's also set by whether you qualify for uh, programs like SNAP and Medicaid and TANF, you know, a bunch of low-income programs like that. So those right. are the, really the big three things we propose, but we also ask a lot of questions. And, and, and like I said, one of the big questions is, how do we get competition in the Lifeline space? I would say one of the disappointments that the Commission has had about Lifeline so far in the wireless space is that the buckets of minutes have essentially been unchanged since 2008. So you get your 250 minutes for your $9.25. And I think people see that because as a as a demonstration that there's there are not enough players in the lifeline space. So what are some of the barriers from keeping folks from participating? For example, there's only one cable company that I know that's a that's an eligible telecommunications carrier, and that's Cox. Mm-hmm. Well, why aren't the others? Because uh, you know a lot of folks have made a pretty good business out of Lifeline. And the thing we hear over and over and over again uh, are the, you know, application processes for becoming an ETC. So, again, we want to look at, one, whether we should just eliminate that requirement. There's some complications there. And, again, if we find that we can't eliminate the requirement to be an ETC, how can we streamline the process so it doesn't become such a burden that people won't participate in the program? So just help me understand, what is there to keep um, the FCC from making that change? Is it like by the law and so you have to go back to Congress to get the an exemption, an exemption? Or is it something else that is preventing them from just saying, okay, we don't want to have that requirement anymore? Uh, you mean whether you're an ETC at all? I think right. I think uh, the lawyers here. I am a lawyer, but um, I hardly practice law anymore. Um, I think there's some concern among our general counsel's office that the plain language of the Communications Act does not permit us to simply say uh, you don't have to be an ETC in order to get Lifeline. There's 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 a question of whether we actually have the authority to do that. Uh, and you know, look, we're hearing arguments on both sides of the of the issue. 
So as I said before, if, you know, and, and, and we've asked a lot of folks who've come in and said, look, I really, really want to provide this service to poor people, but I don't want the burden of an ETC, we're asking them point blank, tell us, tell us how we make the case legally that you don't have to be an ETC in order to get this subsidy. Uh, and again, if there isn't a strong case for that, tell us how we can streamline it. For example, nowadays, if you want to be an ETC, you've got to you've got to apply in every state that you want to be an ETC. And well, is there a one-stop shopping? Can we streamline the application process? Can we make renewal easier? Again, we we, we want to make sure that you know the program is on the up and up, and we don't have fly-by-night companies providing the service. You know, a lot of the, you know, a lot of what you hear about, you know, lifeline, oh, it's ridden with waste, fraud, and abuse, and all this kind of, you know, kind of rhetoric. But the fact of the matter is, is that in 2012, the FCC passed a whole bunch of protections to tamp down on waste, fraud, and abuse, and and it's done an excellent job. I mean, the biggest problem was that you would have duplicates in one household. So lifeline is limited to one uh person per household and what landed up happening was you'd have duplicate people in a household getting lifeline well we can we uh constructed a duplicate database it's called the nlad and uh it's worked wonders duplicates have gone down by enormous amounts so we've done a, a great job of rooting out waste fraud and abuse the proposal to have a national eligibility verifier as opposed to having the carriers verify eligibility themselves, I think we'll tamp down it even more. So we, you know, look, with any government program, you've just got to keep your eye out for folks trying to cheat the system. We've done a great job, and now we want to move forward to the most important thing, which is, you know, making sure that folks can use this subsidy for broadband. Right. But but I would think that... um, Let's see. If you're dealing with a program that says, okay, it, you know, you have one person in a, in a household and then you have wireless services where basically you have like everybody in the house has a unit, you know, a, a device, but what you're here really, are you, I guess you're, you're saying that um, if the house has one computer, that's fine, but if you have to count the person's like smartphone as I don't know, a unit, a separate unit, so that creates problems, if you will. Yes, it does. Now uh, look you know, we've look we've we've talked to folks who represent the homeless and they say, Well how about homeless shelters? <laughs> Is that yeah. a household? So look, there's right. gonna be some situations where we're gonna have to figure out how we make sure that people get connected and they aren't, you know they aren't left out just because of, you know, some uh, inflexible definition. Now, you've got to follow the letter of the law, and you've got to follow your regulations, but we have to figure out how to make sure that, again, in a group home uh, you know, or a homeless shelter, that people aren't being left out of the broadband revolution uh, because of the inflexibility of rules. It's something we're going to have to deal with. I mean, again, it's, it's, it's all a balance. Um, you know, it's all a balance. You know, we don't want folks, you know, engaging in, in, you know, fraud to the extent that, you know, it's one family in a household that's 
They should have one phone, or they should have one uh, subsidy, excuse me. Uh, right. But obviously we're going to have to make, you know, certain, you know, plans for situations that don't fit neatly into the one-family, one-home structure. Right, and I can see that's a bit of a burden. So now let me ask the question that I think is on my community's mind, which is how do you, as a community miles away from D.C., how do you get your voice heard? Because it's not easy. I mean, just uh, just like lo- location is a factor. And then there's, you know, there is the the, the feeling that, you know, uh, all of the big carriers and the incumbents, you know, have lo- lo- lobbyists in D.C. and stuff. You know, and that's a that's a barrier. So how does the community uh, become part of this decision making process? Because obviously it affects them. When you say communities, Craig, are you talking about individuals? Or are you talking about actual you well, know yeah, local government local, officials? Well, you would be it's sort of a collective unit of you know I've got you know ten thousand people in. Uh, Capit, you know, in uh, different different states, in a city, right? Obviously, not all of them want to be part of the decision. Decision, but you know, some of those people want to be able to put in their two cents for it, whether it's the mayor or the city council. I mean, there's a there's a a desire of you know people living in various places to want to have or feel like they have some sort of representative power to go out and say. You know, we would like to have this rule uh, be put in pay, place by the FCC, but but how? So, how, so how, yeah, look, I think our net neutrality proceedings showed that anybody, you know, you don't have to be an elected official to file a comment at the FCC, and hopefully by the end of the year we're going to have a new electronic comment filing system, which will make it much more intuitive uh, than ever. I mean, our our, our current ten-year-old system is pretty much a disaster. I'm not sure anybody would disagree with that. So, you know, the filing of a comment is extraordinarily simple and can take as much as, you know, five or ten minutes. Obviously, we prefer, you know, know, comments that are thoughtful and, and, you know, really help us figure out some of the answers to these questions. But, you know, right then and there, that's a pretty simple way for people to participate. You know, you don't have to come to Washington to have a meeting with staff. You know, you can, you know, those kind of meetings can happen over the phone. Now, if it's a meeting about a proceeding that's underway, you have to file what we call an ex parte notice. So, in other words, it's a description of the arguments that you were making in the meeting. But you don't have to fly to Washington if you've got something, if you want to talk to one of the staff here, either at the bureau level or in one of the commissioners of the chairman's office, it's not that hard. You can send somebody an email and 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 get a meeting. Uh, you know, I, I, meetings are rarely turned down. If they're not timely, they're turned down. Uh, but you know, certainly if it's a, a, an issue we're working on, we'll give that person or that group a meeting. Thirdly, mm-hmm. um, you know, we do have an awful lot of participation by local governments. Uh, and, you know, municipalities of all kinds. We have an intergovernmental advisory committee, uh, which is made up of, it's bipartisan, it's made up of folks from big cities like New York and little towns like Wilton Manors, Florida, which is, you know, part of Fort Lauderdale. 
uh, and they really cover the gamut of a lot of the issues that are relevant to um, uh, cities and states, though I particularly get visited by an awful lot of local and state uh, regulators and, and policymakers on a variety of things, net neutrality, municipal broadband, lifeline, so a lot of those groups, you know, either in their individual capacity, you know, as the, you know, city of New York or through the U.S. Conference of Mayors or through the National League of Cities. I mean, there's a whole bunch of, you know, trade organizations or, you know, nonprofit organizations representing the interests of cities and, 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 and states and localities and their citizens. So, um the last way I would say that that individuals particularly can have their voices heard is, at the FCC is to talk to their congressional delegations. You know, the FCC is a creature of Congress. We don't have to. We only have. We don't have to follow everything Congress tells us to do unless they put it in legislation, right? If we mm-hmm. get we get dozens of letters a week from various and sundry members of Congress saying, "Do this, do that. Give me an answer to this question. Give me an answer to that question." You know, there's been a lot of hearings. The chairman has testified eight times in this calendar year alone, which is probably sets a record for an FCC chair. Mm-hmm. Um, but members of Congress respond to their constituents, and then they turn around and tell us what they'd like. And we oftentimes, I mean, we always respond. We o- always respond to the extent that we'll respond to a letter. But, you know, we take what, folks on the Hill say extremely seriously because they do have, they have oversight over this agency and they have the power of the purse over this agency. They decide, well, how big our budget is going to be. So like I said, we don't always do what every, you know, individual member of Congress tells us to do. Uh, Obviously, if Congress passes a law uh, that tells us what to do, we got to do it. There's no choice there. Uh, but there is a lot of power, and again, I'll, I'll harken back to the net neutrality docket. There's a lot of folks weighed in with their members of Congress and said, you know, we want an open Internet and, and we want, you know, the FCC's authority to be found in Title II of the Communications Act of 1934, and their congressional delegations responded with, you know, in large numbers with letters to us. So, um, you know, there are actually a lot of ways without stepping out of your house that you can have input at the FCC. Okay, that makes sense. By the way, I'll make this note again to uh, my audience. Um, we're having difficulties uh, using the the um, chat room feature, so I have no way to actually communicate with the audience. Uh, and I, I apologize for that, but I cannot figure out how to do this. I don't want to lose uh, the connection to Gigi. So, anyway, uh, back to the, the discussion. So, you know, we talked about the net neutrality. Um, so, in the end, for the average, you know, community that's building, you know, their, these um, broad, broadband networks and so forth, how does net neutrality affect them. I mean, and well, obviously, I'll leave it at that or start with that. Well, why don't, I mean, look, the biggest benefits of net neutrality go to the users, right? Because they can use their network without having to worry that there's some gatekeeper in the middle 
you know, determining what websites get better quality of service or what applications get, you know, faster speeds. You know, it's it's an end-to-end system, which is the way people like it, and that's why 4 million people weighed in on our net neutrality docket. So that's the, that's the real beneficiary is not only the consumer but also the edge provider who doesn't have to worry that their competitor is going to cut a deal with a network operator uh, and put them at a competitive disadvantage. And I would say the advantage for, you know, communities building their own networks is it, it, it sets the expectations, right? You don't have to worry that, you know, you somehow have to cut deals with every edge provider on earth because you can't. All right. There's no paid prioritization, no blocking, no throttling, no paid prioritization, and other discriminatory methods will be looked at as a case-by-case basis. So it actually, it, it actually, I think, makes things easier for you know for network operators because the expectations of what's permissible and what's not are clear. And to the extent that you know community broadband providers don't have you know. Uh, don't have the same resources as as private providers, I think it levels the playing field. Everybody knows that they have to be an open pipe and not mess with the traffic on that pipe. Mm-hmm. Um, now, one of the things that I have noticed, there have been, I honestly, in the last couple of months, there have been a number of like newsletters that I subscribe to and so forth where they bring up the question of, um, oh, what is it, community uh, uh, providers not making services available or making it available at fairly ridiculous rates. I mean, one one um, guy who has a newsletter here in California was talking about their wanting to get uh, Comcast service, and then they got this note that said they can get they can get the service will be like three hundred thousand dollars, something to be ridiculous to bring connectivity to their neighborhood. And I don't. And then they they will mention net neutrality as part of their you know their 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 newsletter article, and I'm not sure I understand that. Does that come into play? Uh, is that issue a part of a neutrality issue? What, what, what are the are the incumbents saying that because we have to comply with net neutrality, that's why our service is so expensive? I really don't understand what you're saying. So, uh, so I'll take the, the the newsletter that was in California, and the guy okay. was saying that um, he wants to get connectivity um, mm-hmm. in for his neighborhood. Right, mm-hmm. and he is told that if he spends a whole lot of money, which he considers to be un, uh, unreasonable, that they could then get that service. And the thing, and the other thing is, I don't understand the connection to net neutrality as part of the the discussion. It's just the fact that he's talking about, you know, we we expect net neutrality to fix, fix this. And I can't figure out. Well, why would we expect someone? Like, why? Why are they connected? It doesn't have. Look, one has to do with connectivity and access, and the other has to do with openness. I don't think they have anything to do with the other. I mean, to be honest with you, I just I don't think there's any relationship. Okay, that's fine. I mean, I I, I have enough time trying to keep up with like the 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 main. 
things are going on in DC. But this one, and as I said, it wasn't it wasn't just him. There was like several people have a similar kind of thing. And um, I think one of the things with net neutrality, just an observation, is that people didn't really understand net neutrality. And I mean, there's like the average person, and I'm not sure they really understood what they were. I mean, they understand uh, openness, right, and mm-hmm. non-discriminatory behavior. But, you know, I don't know if there's more to net neutrality that wasn't, you know, isn't, discuss- isn't discussed or people don't understand or whatever. But it seemed like, you know, people worked on or focused on a couple of things, but I don't know if they really understood the whole parameter of net neutrality, well, look, I, I I I think the parameters of net neutrality are pretty simple. I I think net neutrality is actually a simple concept. It may not be the best words for what's oh, going on yeah. here. You know, openness is probably better. Um, but I think what people understand is that you know we've had an internet, a commercial internet now for what? How many years? Twenty five years or so. I, I'm trying to remember. Around that amount of time, maybe a little less than that, and people decide where they want to go and and what they want to do, and you know, no website is treated better than any other website by the carrier, and people want to keep it that way. I mean, I I think it's a pretty simple concept that you know you, the individual, get to control your internet experience and not anybody else. And and look, we all have. We all have comparisons, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, I grew up watching broadcast TV where I don't get a say as to what's on when and where, right? The broadcaster has all the control and, you know, where, you know, what time is X show going to run and on what channel and, you know, it's all it's all in somebody else's control. Cable similarly, right? I mean, it, it didn't have to be that way, but Congress decided to give the cable operator control over the channels on their system. So it's the cable operator determines what tier, uh, except for broadcasting, which has to be on the basic tier, but determines what tier a channel is on. You know, it determines what channel, again, with broadcasting accepted, but it's got all the control, right? The Mm -hmm. the Internet blows that to bits to the extent that you have the control. And I think people, you know, once once you've been to Paris, you know, you really, you know, you don't want to leave, I think that's the situation here, and and that's how people understand net neutrality. But let me also just say that I think other things were driving the anxiety around net neutrality, and that is because people feel they don't have a choice, broadband providers, okay? They Mm -hmm. feel that that they're paying too much. You know, and look, we've seen – you know, specifically, you know, we don't collect pricing here, so you know the FCC doesn't really have a comparison. But certainly, we've done studies that have shown that for the type of speeds that the FCC considers to be table stakes in today's society, you know, 75% of the country doesn't have a choice of more than one. All right, and 20% of the country, almost 20% of the country, doesn't have connectivity at all at that speed. So that's 25 megabits per second down and 3 megabits per second up. Mm-hmm. So I think a lot of what what was driving the net neutrality debate and the anxiety, the public anxiety, was that nobody makes the case anymore. Nobody even tries to argue 
that broadband is not essential to full participation in society. You've got to have it if you want to get a job, if you want to get an education, if you want to do your homework. You have to have it, okay? Nobody's arguing you don't have to have it, okay? That's number one. Number two is, again, you know, to the extent you have to have it, people find that they don't have a lot of choice and they're paying a lot of money. So even though that's a little bit different from the question of openness, because I suppose you can have, you know, one provider who's charging a lot but is open. But, again, I think it's just, it was a lot of things mixing in to the, you know, sort of to to the net neutrality uh, discussion. And that's why I think you saw so much public focus on it. Okay. Um. One of the the questions uh, that I've had, um, you know, when we're talking about, you know, all the things that people can do on on the web, and and you're right, no one's arguing. Do we have? Do we need to have broadband? Yes, we need to have it. But with some of the applications that are being talked about or promised that are really intensive, you know, whether it's using, you know. Um, medical uh, innovation or whether we're doing new ways of teaching and so forth and so on, it starts to require more and more bandwidth. Um, will the FCC be addressing the what qualifies as minimum speeds? Is this going to you know, be regularly looked at because it seems like every couple of months you know, you have new applications that need more bandwidth, which means that your your, your systems, your your networks, have to try to, you know, get there to that level. Keep up. Right. And so you guys have set up, you know, uh, increase the minimum requirements, but will the FCC maybe coming back to this on a, you know, regular basis? Not that they have to change it every time, but do they, you know, monitor it? Do they talk about it? Do something in terms of are we getting enough minimum requirements out there? So by law, the FCC has to address whether broadband is being deployed to all Americans on a reasonable, timely basis. So this is, you know, this is mandated under Section 706 of the 1996 Telecommunications Act. Okay, and mm-hmm. we call that our broadband progress report. In fact. Uh, we just released the inquiry. So basically we asked people for information about, you know, is broadband being uh, deployed to all Americans on a reasonable, timely basis. We asked, just asked that question again. We just adopted an order yesterday, not an order, but a notice of inquiry where we're asking the same, very same question. Well, in order to determine whether broadband is being deployed to all Americans on a reasonable and timely basis, you have to determine what broadband is, Correct. Right. Mm-hmm. So last year, or actually in February of this year, we found that the definition, which was 4 megabits per second down, 1 megabits per second up, was wholly inadequate for the way people use broadband today. You know, and not just for video, but for, you know, uh, telecommuting and telemedicine and, and multiple devices in the home. So we upped the speed, as I mentioned before, to 25 megabits per second down and 3 megabits per second up. So we do have to, at an annual basis, in determining whether broadband is being
Hello? Good Lord. We seem to have lost a connection. Let me try to get back. Gigi, we I something locked us uh, locked us out here. Are you are you are you yeah, back? I'm here. I'm I'm here. I was going going on and on and on and continuing to talk while the phone was ringing and <laughs> <laughs> not realizing. So I I don't know where I got cut off. You were but the the larger point is that every year we have to make a determination. Determination, yes. Essentially, about what is broadband and what what's the proper speed in order to determine whether broadband is being deployed to all Americans. We just started a new inquiry, and in our last inquiry, we upped the minimum speed from four one to twenty five three. And again, it's up to folks in the public to tell us why twenty five three is inadequate. But we don't have the resources to do it monthly. Right, and I'm not sure it's necessary either. Right, but at least we're we're looking at it, and, and obviously everyone's aware that uh, you have to keep tabs on the requirements, just because everything changes in technology every every it seems like every other day, but uh, definitely every few months. Um, we've got only a couple couple minutes. Let me uh, get on one question. We you had talked about you know Lifeline earlier. Um, and everyone recognizes that as you know part of the issue of um, you know if there's a lot of com- competitors you know it helps pricing and the type that helps the type of uh, services that get get in there. Um, what kinds of other things can or will the FCC be doing that will uh, ensure that we are in- increasing the amount of comp- or the level of competitiveness? in the area of providing broadband services? So obviously, as you know, we've been extraordinarily supportive of uh, of uh, communities building their own broadband. And as you know, we preempted the laws of Tennessee uh, and of North Carolina to allow the systems was the uh, system in Chattanooga and a system in Wilson North Carolina to expand their footprints. So we will can you know I, I'm not going to say we're going to preempt laws every day and there's still 17 other states uh that have restrictions of some some sort or other. I think actually Craig and you know you think there are more which is entirely possible. Um but I think you know generally you know, you don't you don't pre you don't preempt laws willy nilly. But you know, if there's a compelling case and somebody makes a case to us that their law is a barrier to entry, uh, we'll certainly look at it. But uh, you know, I think what we did in North Carolina and Tennessee, assuming they're upheld by the courts, could really uh, be very very interesting for you know for those states that that have barriers. But we're also going to look 
we're going to look at other barriers to entry uh, in local markets. So we've done that in the wireless space. So, for example, we streamlined and eliminated reviews of infrastructure siting. We reduced certain costs and delays associated with facilities siting and construction. And now I think we have to look at, you know, similar restrictions in the wireline space. So one thing we have already done was that the net neutrality order eased access for competitors to utility poles and other conduits necessary to broadband deployment. And we followed up with a public notice in May seeking information on how to better align the cost of using poles and conduits. And I think we want to, you know, eventually come out with a final decision that helps to align those costs and ensure that, you know, one of Google Fiber's biggest complaints is is having you know, that they have problems getting access to polls. So we, we want to fix that. Um, you know, and we need to see what other barriers there are for, for wireline competitors. I know that access to multiple dwelling units is an issue uh, for fiber providers. I don't know, and I don't want to propose to know whether we have the authority to do that, but we need to see what's in, you know, what the FCC can do uh, to help promote competition uh, you know, particularly in, in urban areas. You know, on the rural side of the house, um, you know, we, we're trying to get as much spectrum out there as possible. We just adopted the rules. We adopted four orders in the last two days uh, that will set the rules of the road for our broadcast in incentive auction. And that's an auction where broadcasters sell back the spectrum they're on to us, and then we resell it to wireless carriers. So I think, you know, the hope is to get the more spectrum you can, low-band spectrum you can get out, the better connectivity you're going to have in rural areas. I mean, that's huge. We're also looking at satellite. And, you know, right now the problem with satellite technology is, is the latency problem. But even that's improving. And, in fact, when we issued that notice of inquiry on the, on, on the broadband that I mentioned earlier, we're actually now considering whether satellite ought to be part of the calculus as to whether um, broadband is being deployed to all Americans on a reasonable and timely basis. So, you know, we're doing what we can within our power to try to make sure that both urban and rural residents uh, get connected. Uh, but I, I do think one of the big things that we are doing, you know, even if it doesn't necessarily involve preempting uh, state laws is we really have been, you know, encouraging communities to build their own, to decide their own broadband future. I love some of the stories about Sandy, Oregon, or the Dales in Oregon, or Leverett, Massachusetts, or Westminster, Maryland, or Charlottesville, Virginia, who are, you know, either doing it on the by themselves or they're partner, partnering with a with a private entity like Ting. And you know, I, I gave a little speech in Westminster, Maryland, at the at the at the um, lighting of their fiber network. You know, it's ten thousand people, thirty only thirty miles west of Baltimore. And I had a couple of their city council members come up to me, and they said, "Gigi, we asked the incumbents to build a network, and they just wouldn't do it. We didn't really want to build our own network, but we had to. Our town would basically shrivel up and die. Nobody would move here unless we have." you know, high-speed broadband. So, you know, I've been doing a bit of traveling, and my boss has been doing a bit of traveling around the country, basically saying to people, have at it. You know, it's not for every town and city, but, you know, if the incumbents are not providing what you need, you got to find a way to build it yourself. Right, and there you go. 
And with that, that pretty much covers us in terms of our uh, time today. Uh, I want to thank you, Gigi, for taking time to to be here and talk with our listeners and so forth. Um, it, it's been great, and I appreciate it very much, and hopefully uh, we'll get a chance to do this again uh, down the road as well. Super. Well, it's been a, a real pleasure. Great. And to my audience, thank you for uh, being with us today. Uh, next week I'm going to have a show fo- focused on uh, the state of broadband where a number of people who are involved with uh, broadband projects across the nation are going to weigh in on what's the state of broadband uh, today. So you definitely want to keep an eye out for that. Um, thank you, everyone, and thank you, uh, Gigi, and let's have a great weekend and talk to you again next week. Bye, everybody.